Well, let me introduce myself. I am Pastor Marty DeFell, and I was born in January of 1958 to a 13-year-old girl. And I was given up for adoption immediately after my birth. A young couple, Jack and Irene DeFell, adopted me. I grew up on a farm in Columbus County, went off at 18 to the Air Force, and I've said that that was my running. I was not giving up on God's call in my life that came at age 15 to be a pastor, but um, there were a lot of things that happened from age 15 to 18, graduating from high school, that led to uh, me leaving home. Years later, um, undergrad degree, worked in management, very large corporation, uh, master's, doctorate, wife, nine children, six grandchildren. But the only thing that is missing that I haven't told you is that I'm a Christian. I'm an avid follower of Jesus Christ, and I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Now, if you or anyone else were to ask me, who are you, uh, that's what I would tell you in many ways. All of you have a story. All of you, if I came up to you and said, let me hear your story, you would begin at some point along that continuum of who you or what you uh, experienced in your life and how you have come to this place in your life today. I will tell you that, as I said a little bit in there, there were many events and things that happened in my life that shaped me into even who I am today standing before you. All of you have had events, you have had circumstances, you have had heartache and mountain experiences that you have gone through that have shaped who you are. So you would be able to answer that question if I was to ask you, Joy, who are you? So Jesus one day was traveling, and he was with his disciples, and he was in Caesarea Philippi, that's north of Jerusalem, and way north of Jerusalem, by the way. And he is talking with his disciples, and he begins to ask them some questions, and he expects answers from them. And what the text gives us today is important for us to hear. Yes, Jesus was talking with his disciples, and it was important for that day. It actually, what happened in this text and what Jesus is doing and saying with the disciples that day, I've got to believe that after Pentecost, they looked back at this moment and, and this moment began to shape how they began to live out beyond Pentecost what God was calling them to do. 
It's just as important for the church today for you and I to hear this passage. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along Matthew 16. I'll be reading six verses, 13 through 18, and uh, it's on the screen if you don't have your scriptures with you. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds this morning for what you would hold for us through this, your holy text. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And they respond to him. It, it, it doesn't say who responded. Maybe Peter said something, and we know he does in just a few minutes in the text after they answer that first question. But the disciples respond. The text says, Matthew tells us, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. There was a reason by that from what the Old Testament passages would say. And Others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And so Jesus was setting them up. Jesus was helping them to hone in on the next question. And that next question is, but who do you say that I am? It's one thing to wonder what others say about Jesus. It's a whole other thing for you to have to say who he is. And so in verse 16, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And there it is. The acknowledgement of, the, of who Jesus is. You did not come of this yourself, Jesus says, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. And then we come to verse 18, and we're going to set on this verse for most of the rest of the morning. Upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. I want you to keep that phrase in mind. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Before they could ever get to the point of, I'm going to build my church, though, they had to acknowledge who he was. 
because there is no other one besides Christ. They had to acknowledge that he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. This is who Jesus is. To acknowledge anything else would be false, would be hypocritical, would be apostate, would be wrong. John tells us, as he records in the 14th chapter, as Jesus is beginning to uh, give them his farewell discourse, as it's called in, in John's account, and in verse 6, and again, most of you know 14.6, For I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so some say, well, wait a minute, that can't be. Uh, that's so exclusive. That is so in, um, ingrained in just one person. That can't be. There's been other religions and other gods and other things that people have worshipped and, and are you just going to discount all of that and just claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? And of course my answer is yes, I am. He is the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. Without that acknowledgement first, you can't get to the church. You have to know him to be a part of the living body that Jesus calls his church. And I want to unpack that this morning. So the sermon title was or is Acknowledgement and a Promise. And so our acknowledgement comes without any reservation, it should, I hope yours does, Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the son of the living God. If you don't believe that, please see me after the service. And then we come to the church. And the acknowledgement of who Christ is, and as we see the church in Scripture, we can't separate those two. And so I want us to look at this verse that Jesus says, I will build my church this morning. Ephesians 5.22 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. I know the context of that passage, and you do too. Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus about ma marriage and relationship. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church, for he gave himself for her. We know that. But the marriage relationship reflects Christ and the church. Our marriage should reflect that to one another this love relationship. But Paul reminds us that Christ gave himself for the church. You say, well, I thought the scripture said God gave himself for me. Let's make it individual. Yes, God gave himself for you to come to faith in him, but he brings us together as the body of Christ called the church. And so 
Paul reminds us that Christ gave his life for the church. And if Christ gave his life for the church, isn't the church important? Shouldn't it be a part of our life? Shouldn't it be an avid part of our life? If he gave himself for the church, can we do anything less? Can we? Shouldn't we love the church as Christ loved it? So Paul continues in verse 23 in that fifth chapter of Ephesians. Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. You say, well, I thought he was talking about relationship and marriage. And and yes, he is, but he's also talking about our relationship with him and the church and these metaphors that he is using, the body and this relationship and that uh, we are the bride and he is the bridegroom and this bridegroom is going to come back and claim his church, one without spot and without wrinkle. Christ is going to do that. He will bring his church into his presence The church is the habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. And so the church is the body of Christ. Brought and bought, brought into the presence and bought with the blood of Christ. And I can't wait until that day when we cross over or I cross over individually or Christ comes and claims his church and we come into his presence for all eternity. Andrew Brunson was preaching on uh, Friday night and he said in his sermon, God gave me a vision in that jail cell in Turkey of heaven. And he said, listen guys, it's not going to be an ever-ready choir practice that people think. It's going to be fantastic to be in the presence of the living God. The church was born after Pentecost, as we know. We call it the birthday of the church, and and. This passage, and only in selective passages in the Gospels, do we see the word church or ecclesia appear. Now, we know that in Acts and in the other uh, uh, epistles, we see the church multiple times. But often, more often than not, the church is only used in the Gospel in context with this, that I will build my church, Jesus says. So as Christians, we are not only committed to Christ, but we are committed to the church that Christ builds. Many today have developed what I would consider a non-biblical view of the church. Many think the church is a take it or leave it. In other words, if the church is not meeting my need, then I'm going to go find a church just that will meet my need. So the church has to look the way I think it ought to look, or it's got to provide what I think it should provide, or I'll just go find another church. It's really not about some of the things that I will share about what the, the true church looks like in a few minutes, but it's as 
I need my needs met. I told you that I served a church in Wilmington, and when I went there, um, they had just released a campaign, and, and <laughs> it was like, okay, I'm, I'm not sure that I like this, but you've done all of this work, and for the next few months, we're going to live into it. And here's what their slogan was. Our church is the church for everyone. Just come. And their whole message was, it doesn't matter what the church looks like. We just want you here. And so, well, wait a minute. <laughs> the church has a foundation. And the church is to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Are all welcome? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the compromise of the scripture is not going to be in any way watered down. And so the biblical view of the church is through the lens of scripture. We look at the church as Christ has called it, developed it, built it on himself. And I will say that again, the habitation of God is through the spirit that he has called us to in the church to be his body. So we come to this verse, verse 18. And I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades, will not overpower it. This morning, I believe that this one verse gives us seven, seven promises, principles of the church. And so I just want to quickly unpack those. I think I'm going to go by the clock on the back wall. It says it's five after nine, so it means that I've got an hour and 45 minutes before I need to end the service. So y'all just sit back and enjoy. Number one, the church is a permanent foundation. The church is a permanent foundation. Jesus says, you're Peter. Yes, Jesus says, you're Peter. And the word Peter here is Petros, which means little stones or a pebble is often used for that word. But Jesus goes on to say, but on this rock, and when he uses the word rock, it's Petra, which means slab or giant stone. And so Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're a little pebble, but I'm going to build my church on this slab, this rock. And, and, and so often we think or we question, oh, is Peter the rock in which Jesus builds his church on? And the answer is no. He's not. The church is built on Jesus Christ. He is the slab and the foundation. He is the rock in which the church is being built on. He looks at Peter and says, you're going to be one of the stones. You're going to be one of the, the, the people that are going to be avid and valid and awesome in building my church. 
But the church is built on me. I am the rock. I will build my church, Jesus says. So the permanent foundation is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. The church is not built on any human being. The apostles certainly helped to be a part of building the church for Jesus. They did a wonderful job even to the point of giving their life. But when Paul says, I preach Christ, he was saying, I preach Christ who is the foundation of the church. Number two, Jesus has a personal involvement in his church. Jesus says, I, emphasis I, I will be the one to build. And I thank God that he is the one who builds his church because I want to be used by him, but I am so thankful that he didn't put me in charge of all of that. Christ and through the Holy Spirit, he builds his church. We are fellow servants, believers in faith, in what God has called us to do in using our talents and our gifts for his purpose for the church. Third, Jesus. We see the, the positive expectation of the building of the church. Jesus says, I will. The emphasis on will. I will. This is going to happen. There is no question in Jesus' mind. And as the disciples, I believe, look back after Pentecost and they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they had no question of what God was going to do. I will build my church, the church that will be triumphant. Four, notice that Jesus talks about this powerful advance. I will build my church, and this is an action. Building is an action. You can't take a two-by-four and lay it on the floor, and it begin to, to build or make something. You have to have those components, different pieces, to take the action of building and so Jesus says, I will build, meaning that the church will grow, the church will expand. And we only have to look at just a few minutes after Pentecost. So 120 gathered in the upper room after the Holy Spirit descended on those that were there. Peter comes out in Acts 2 and he begins to, to preach and as he preaches, people believe, and it says that 3,000 were added to their number that day, that moment. So the church in just a matter of short time, hours at the most, would have gone from 120 to 3,120. I will build my church, Jesus says. It is a promise, and it is a promise that you can take to the bank. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, 
And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we look at the church today and through the testimony and witness of many saints throughout the years, throughout the decades, throughout the century, the church has grown. And we look at the church in America today and we say, well, wait a minute, it appears that attendance is declining in the church in America. And if you were to say that, you would be saying a true statement It appears that there are a number of churches that are closing in America today. And if you were to say that, that statement is true. But if you were to look at the church around the world, God is expanding his church globally. God is at work. God is working through the church in America to proclaim the gospel to lost folks. It is very interesting that many other countries now send their missionaries to America to proclaim the gospel because the American church is not doing the job, the witnessing that they should do. God has called us. God wants to advance his church. And he will. Number five, Jesus has the personal ownership of the church. He says, I will build whose church? My church. I will build my church. Acts 20, 28 says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Jesus owns the church. How do we know that? Through scripture. He gave his very life. His blood was poured out for the church. And when Paul met with the elders and the pastors at Ephesus, he said, look, you are to feed the flock. You are to equip them. You are to help them. But the church has been purchased by the blood of Christ. It is Christ's church and no one else. Number six, it is, the peop- it is a people-centered church. Ecclesia means the, the called-out ones or the called-out assembly. And so the church is not a church building, though it is nice to have a building to worship in as we do. The church is not an organization. It's not a particular denomination, though some are true to the word. It is a people who are called out to to assemble for the purpose that God has called them to, and that is, folks, to be witnesses for him to help in his work of saving the lost. There are two categories of churches or or the church that we see today, and that is the first, the universal church. And as I mentioned, there is not... Uh, In in the universal church, we're not looking at denomination. We're not looking at organizations or non-denomination. We are looking at the universal church is made up of everyone that is truly born again. Everyone that has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ is a part of 
the universal church. We talk about that when we recite the Apostles' Creed. Now, there's a word that's used, and I know Bill Enns, and he's, he's my word guy. And so uh, we hear this, the invisible church. I don't like that term for the church. I just don't like it. I, I think it, it doesn't do justice. I think we need to talk about the church that is universal in the fact that we have, the true believer has, surrendered their life to Jesus. So Jesus is the center of that person and that, those churches. Secondly, we see that God has called the church as a local church. So that would be the second category, that the individuals who have faith in Jesus Christ, part of the universal church, make up the local churches around the world, like hope. And there's a purpose for that, a purpose for baptism, a purpose for communion, a purpose for fellowship, a purpose for preaching and teaching and equipping. And please don't ever leave out the other two and that is prayer and evangelism. Both of those have to be avid parts of Christ's church. He has given us a heart for his church and for the lost. And if you do not have a heart for the lost, I want you to be begin praying that God will give you a heart for those that do not know him. Not everyone in the church, we think about the lost being outside these doors or maybe out in our neighborhoods or maybe in the organizations or businesses we work in or used to work in. And yes, that is true, but in the church, there are people sitting in chairs and pews that do not and have never surrendered their life to Christ. And it is so important that the gospel message be preached in the church. The seventh. The church is a promise that will come to completion. Jesus says in verse 18 that the gates of hell or Hades, however your version has it, will not prevail against it. And that is the church. We know that it's going to come to completion. We know that the church will come to, to rest with Christ in eternity. It is perfect. It is right in all things if it is the true church. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body and have all been made to drink of one spirit. And so the true church is baptized into Christ, is a part of the flow of what Christ has called us to be. And the true church is a church that shepherds, a church that leans on the chief shepherd, which is Jesus Christ, no other. I want to give you four what I consider ingredients of the true church, what needs to be a part of any church that says um, we are the church of Jesus Christ. And the first one is sound biblical 
doctrine. I mentioned Acts 2, and if you go to Acts 2.42, it says that they continued steadily, steadfastly in the apostles' teaching doctrine. And, and so the true church, the church that is a part of Jesus Christ, has built their foundation on Jesus, is going to have sound doctrine. It's valid and, and so important for the health and the growth of the church, the life of the church, to have sound doctrine. Paul tells the church, don't go with the winds and, and don't be blown here or there, but put your faith in Jesus. Listen to what the scriptures say. The early church had strong teaching and preaching from those within the church, the disciples and others who came to Christ who were called to be shepherds. They studied the Old Testament. They listened to the word that was given to them. And as the church has evolved, as the church has grown, as God has used his church and grown his church, those true churches that have been sound in doctrine, have understood that the message, the witness, the proclamation of the gospel, evangelism is important and can be very powerful when the church lives in to what God has called them to be. Preaching nothing else but God's pure adulterated word. The second essential ingredient of the true church is fellowship. And, and I thought about that a while ago as you were greeting one another in um, passing of the peace. I heard Bruce over here say, that's fellowship. And it is. That word fellowship, koinia, means holding in common. It means what's held in common. And as the true church of Christ, as a church of believers, a church that lives into what God has called them to be in fellowship, they hold things in common. They hold the word in common. They hold their salvation in common. They believe that Christ is the only way. And fellowship becomes a part of loving one another. One of the things that was reiterated over and over again. If you were to talk to any of us that were at Presbytery this weekend, you would hear that out of prayer comes love and compassion for one another. In other words, if I am praying for Suku and I'm praying with Suku, I can't help but to have compassion and a connection with her. I'm having fellowship with her if I am praying for her and with her. And we see that over and over again. So fellowship is that connection with one another. Holding in common and then sharing with one another. The third mark of the true church is a worshiping church. And I mentioned that those elements of, of prayer and worship and communion and baptism and fellowship and all of that is a part of that. But the true church is a worshiping church that breaks the bread and prays for one another and loves one another. They participate together in worship for the praising and the glorification of who God is and what he has done. 
we come together in worship to lift our praise together for the church he has called. And then fourth, the true church is evangelistic. You can't ignore it. In Acts 2.41, it says, They were praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their numbers daily those that were being saved. It didn't say in the text in, in Acts 2. You go read it. Uh, I didn't read it verbatim, but you go read it, and it doesn't say that old people were just coming into their presence. It actually says that God was adding to their numbers the people that were being saved. And if they were being saved, they were surrendering their life to Christ. And Jesus says in our text, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so church, as we live out this call that God has given us to worship together, to fellowship together, to be about sound doctrine and praising and preaching and teaching of his word. We have to carry that if we're the true church out evangelistically to a lost world. We have to share Christ. A true spirit-filled church is not so preoccupied with in-reach and upreach, though those are important. They cannot forget about outreach. A spirit-filled church reaches up to God. A spirit-filled church builds one another up in love. But a spirit-filled church goes out to share the gospel. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses, an action word. You shall be my witnesses. And this word we get martyr from. And we saw that the early church fathers, saints, were martyred often in the faith. Listen, church, the Lord is working. He is adding to his numbers daily. You may not see it concretely, Maybe even you can say, well, I haven't seen that within my congregation. I haven't seen that in numbers, but I will tell you that God is working and God is faithful and his church is growing and he is adding to the numbers. And sometimes it's like Acts where thousands come to faith in Christ and we have seen that through crusades and revivals and so on through time. Or it may be where... It's like Philip witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's one-on-one. -on -one. Or it may be through missionary endeavors where, you remember in Acts 13 where it says the Spirit set apart Barnabas and Saul to do the work of carrying the gospel out? That's who we are. We are called to be a part of the church that is going. Personal evangelism, uh, supporting our missionaries that are going in outreach, but as a church reaching out. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
I want to read that again and just say a couple more things. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house or the church, you could insert there, they labor in vain who build it. It is the Lord's church. He is the foundation. We are the pebbles. And it is awesome that he uses us to build his church. Little old me, little old you, God will use to build his church. And when we build it on his foundation and hear him say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we have to believe it. We are to live into it and be a part of what he is doing. And he is doing something. He continues to do something and will until he returns. Thanks be to God for the church and the fact that he has called us to be a part of the work that he's doing. Father, thank you for this passage. It is a reminder, and I pray even today that we would go back and look at these verses, and especially verse 18. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing in the church. We thank you that it is moving. And yes, we see many churches that have deviated from your word. And we have seen people that have left the church. But Father, it doesn't preclude the fact that you have called us to continue to work. Unveil our eyes to those opportunities that we have to share the good news of the gospel. That we would look and not turn but you would use us for your purpose. Father, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.